Thank you, Jim. Good evening. Many of you know the name Mary Mallon. Does that name sound familiar? You might know her by her nickname, Typhoid Mary. You ever heard of Typhoid Mary? She has the dubious honor of being the first person to be an asymptomatic carrier of Salmonella typhi in the United States. She was a chef for affluent families in New York City, and although she had uh, no symptoms, she was a picture of health, she is believed to have infected at least 50 people with typhoid, three of which ended up dying. She was put in quarantine twice. The second time was the last 23 years of her life. She spent 23 years in isolation, separated from society. Can you imagine how horrible that existence would be? All Mary Mallon wanted to do is live a normal life, and yet for much of it, she was treated like a leper. All she wanted to do was have a normal existence, and unfortunately, she will not be remembered for Mary Mallon the chef. She'll be remembered as Typhoid Mary, the spreader of a terrible disease. You know, legacies are tricky. You know, often they're in the eyes of the beholder. Some people will leave a lasting legacy of positivity. Because of the impeccable character that they lived with, they will long be remembered as great folks who made a great impact on society. And then you have others who will never overcome a bad legacy, no matter how hard they try. Charles Manson will never be remembered as anything other than an evil, horrible person. But then between the extremes, you have us, right? Most of us fall in the middle somewhere. And our legacy is kind of open to interpretation a lot of times. Am I considered to be a good coach? Depends on who you ask. I had a lot of friends that supported me through thick and thin, players that still keep in contact with me. But there's some that hated my guts and still do to this day and thought I was the worst coach that ever lived. So it's open to interpretation a lot of times. But it doesn't matter how much of a a legacy you leave behind, whether good or bad, they all have warts. Everyone's life has some warts. And certainly, we have seen that in this series. As we look at these Faith Hall of Famers, we're seeing people who are remembered for their faith, but they were not without their problems. But if this lesson, this series of lessons, teaches us anything, it teaches us to fail forward. That's the encouragement. And tonight, we look at a man who leaves a tremendous legacy of faith. His name is Abraham. And in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning of verse 8, this is what we read. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he left, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I think you can pick out three key words there, and Abraham's legacy can be defined by these three words, and they are leaving, living, and looking. Let's look at the first one, leaving. Notice verse 8 again. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he left, not knowing where he was going. Now, the interesting thing about Abraham when we first meet him is there's nothing really special about him. Have you noticed that? 
There's nothing that really stands out. He's not presented as some righteous man who's living for God. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, we see that his family didn't worship Yahweh. So it seems as though God appears to Abraham completely out of the blue. Which all that really matters is that God sought him because he saw something special in him. Something that he could use and that would benefit others on a grand scale. God makes Abram a promise. He promises to bless him. He promises to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. He promises to make a great nation out of him. In fact, God says this, you are to be a blessing and all families on the face of the earth will be blessed through you. Now, this would have been quite an interesting proposition because if you know anything about Abram and Sarai, his wife, at this point in life, what do you know? Well, they were infertile, like they were old. They were not going to have children. Their name was destined to perish with them. And so it would have been a, quite a proposition for God to say, I'm, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have many, many kids. And, you know, obviously uh, that would have been quite humorous. How was a childless couple advanced in years going to become the parents of a great nation? And yet, without anything but a promise of blessing to come, Abram sets out on a journey of faith with his wife, with his nephew Lot. He leaves his settled world and he begins a pilgrimage with God. A pilgrimage of faith in a world of God's making. He sets out without a GPS, without any kind of navigational system, only the blessing, the promise of blessing. So he leaves his home and he leaves his surroundings and he sets out on a journey to a foreign territory, an unfamiliar destination, all the while living in a tent, escaping a famine, only to have to deal with the threat of losing his wife to Pharaoh, separating from his nephew, getting involved in a war between kings. I mean, he faces one obstacle after another with very little external confirmation from the Lord except this promise, promise to make a great nation out of him. The Lord promised that he would do something great through him, and yet he and Sarah have one child. Hardly a nation, whether great or otherwise. But through persistent plotting, God begins the salvation of the world through this one man. This one man who left his homeland, took his family, and journeyed into the unknown. And facing obstacles that came his way, he had the faith and trust in God to use him in a profound way. I know you're tired of me saying this. I can't help it, though. Many times we see our story in the characters of Scripture. In the Old Testament especially, we see foreshadowing to the New Testament. We see the story playing out through a thread of people. And certainly we can find ourselves in Abraham. His story is our story. We are heirs according to this promise. And because our story is his story, then we too might have to leave. There may be some things that we may have to leave behind. We may have to leave an addiction behind. We may have to leave certain family behind. We may have to leave friends behind. We may have to leave certainly worldliness behind. Notice I didn't say the world. You live in this world. You're to make an impact in the world. You're to be the light in the world. But worldliness is a philosophy. And you're going to have to leave worldliness if you're going to enter into the promised land. Worldliness is a way of life, and this way of life is diametrically opposed to the way that God would have us to live. But here's the deal. You you can't get your inheritance without leaving worldliness. Every individual is faced with a decision when it comes to discipleship, and the decision is this. Is what you gain in God 
more important than what you currently have. So you have to do a cost-benefit analysis. Is what you gain in God better than what you currently have? I can answer that for you. The answer is unequivocally yes. But faith requires leaving. Just before God gives Abram the promise, we find God's people hard at work. So if you back up in Genesis chapter 11, it's after the flood. The people leave the ark, Noah and his family. And God gives a command here. It's the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. Scatter out on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Yet the people decide to stick together. And they get into this tower building business. They decide that they're going to settle on the plain in Shiner, not Shiner, Texas, in Shiner or Shinar, and they're going to build this tower that reaches high up into heaven. And they're going to make a name for themselves. They're going to leave a legacy for future generations to admire. People would come from all over and they would see this magnificent tower and they would remember the people who built it. But in all their proud self-exertion, they never stopped to think that maybe this whole tower building business was a bad idea. They're going to build this tower that reaches high into heaven and the God in heaven is not pleased with them at all. The contrast comes in chapter 12. Abraham does what the tower builders should have done. He put God at the center of his life and allowed God to make him great. The tower builders were trying to make their own name for themselves. They were trying to become great on their own. But Abraham says, no, I'm going to let God do that. Abraham allowed God to make his name great. And those who built the tower, they were self-directed. But Abraham was God-directed. Which is interesting because when you think about it, all those tower builders were trying to make a great name for themselves. Can you name one of them? You know anybody that built that tower? No, you don't. They are a forgotten part of history. But Abraham, we remember, his name became great. We will remember the name of Abraham because of what he allowed God to do through him. So that's the first part of the legacy. You got to leave. The second thing is you got to live. That's the second aspect to this legacy. Notice verse 9 again. By faith, he lived as a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Abraham lived as an alien in the middle of a promise. Does that sound like someone you know? Shake your head yes. That's you, right? That is you. Listen to this. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him at peace and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which there are some things that are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unscrupulous people and lose your own firm commitment, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, many times, folks want God to show them where he's taking them. They want to see the destination first and then decide whether they want to go there or not, whether they want to follow God or not. Obviously, that's not the right approach. The twists and turns 
that it may take to get to the destination might be treacherous, the terrain may be difficult to tread, but living as a stranger in a foreign land while frustrating, while disheartening, while depressing, may be exactly what we need. The reality is that this life is going somewhere, that this isn't all that there is, this isn't the destination, this is the journey, so you had better pack accordingly. And and Peter tells us what we need to pack. Faith, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. But the first virtue that he mentions is faith. Because if you don't have faith packed in your bag, it doesn't matter what else you pack. But these are the only items you need in the journey through this life. If you pack just these things, you have all you need. You know, we tend to overpack, don't we, when we go somewhere or we take a journey? Just in case. And anytime we go on a journey, we're going to pack the essentials that we need for that that journey. If you're going hiking in the Rocky Mountains, you're probably not going to pack a lot of flip-flops and shorts and things like that. You're going to pack things necessary for that trip. These are the things necessary for the trip. If you only pack your bags with these things, you're going to make it. You're going to get to the destination. But you got to have faith. If you don't have faith in the bag, it doesn't matter what else you pack. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The journey is over before it ever began. We must get faith right to get the rest of it right. So if faith is not in your bag, you're not adequately packed. You know this, but we are going somewhere. And like Abraham, we have been given a promise. God has called us to embark on an incredible journey to the promised land called heaven. And just as Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God... We're looking for the same thing. We're going to the same destination. Like Abraham, we are sojourners, aliens in this land. We dwell here now. We dwell in this tent, this tent that's our mortal body. And we put our full faith and trust in God who's going to lead us home. And like Abraham, our journey begins and ends with faith. Without faith, there's no reason to even begin the journey. Without faith, the journey is a dead end. So you have leaving, you have living, and then you have looking notice verse 10 again for he was looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God there's a mantra a mantra in sports called trust the process you ever heard that you ever heard that axiom trust the process that's what Abraham had to do that's what we have to do as Christians trust the process one thing that stands out about Abraham's journey that we need to pay very close attention to is the fact that Abraham was able to find joy in the journey. He didn't go begrudgingly. He didn't hold contempt in his heart while trying to put on a smile. He showed gratitude and praise for the God that was calling him and leading him. He had his doubts, his questions, as any of us would have, but his faith won out time and time again. And some reflect on on Abraham's story and they think, how? How could he do that? How could he leave his homeland where he was settled where he had his wealth and become a nomad? How could he sacrifice his only son, the son that he had prayed for, the son that he had longed for? How could he be willing to sacrifice him? How could he do that? And the answer is because he was completely invested in the will of God. God's vision was his vision. And when God's vision is your vision, it changes how you look at life. The key to it all for Abraham was that he looked. He was looking, verse 10 tells us. He had a heavenly focus. If you learn to look at heaven, you'll live better here on earth. We all need to be Santonio Holmes. You know who that is? You recognize that name? Santonio Holmes was the wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers 
who kind of sealed the deal in Super Bowl 43 when he caught a pass in the corner of the end zone. In the NFL, you have to have both feet in bounds. And so Ben Roethlisberger throws a, a pass to the corner of the end zone, and Santonio Holmes reaches up and catches the ball just as it's on his fingertips while keeping his toes inbounds on the ground. Now, if he had decided to jump and leave his feet, he wouldn't have been in bounds. He would have come down out of bounds. If he decided to keep his feet on the ground and not reach up, he would have caught the ball. But instead, he keeps his toes down and reaches as high as he can, and he catches the ball, comes down inbounds, barely inbounds, and seals the win for the Steelers. And that's us. We reach high and we touch low. As Christians, we reach high and we touch low. Two feet on the ground, two eyes towards heaven, always. How can we, how can we trust in God and trust the process? We do so by having heavenly focus, leaving, living, and looking. That was the key to Abraham's success, and that's why he was inducted into the Faith Hall of Fame. He sets a, a beautiful example for all of us. However, it's not a flawless example. And you were thinking, okay, Chris, when are you going to get to it? We know that Abraham had a couple of scars anyway, probably more than that, obviously, but two that we really know of that stand out. Look with me at Genesis 12, starting in verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a time because the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he was approaching Egypt that he said to his wife Sarai, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is uh, his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister so that it may go well for me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. Now it came about when Abram entered Egypt that the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake, and he gave him sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Go to Genesis chapter 20, and starting in verse 1, this is how it reads. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Then he lived for a time in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent men and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you kill a nation even though blameless? Did he himself not say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return to her, now that you will certain, know that you will certainly die, you and all that are yours. Not Abraham's best moment. I don't know about you, but I can sympathize a little bit. You know, self-preservation, I get it. You do some silly things when you're trying to self-preserve. I'm a person of faith who has failed miserably at times. I know you are as well. But will our failures be merely moments or monuments? That's the key. And that's what we learn from these faith hall of famers. Their flaws were moments. Their low points were moments. They weren't monuments. 
It all depends on how you handle these things. Abraham didn't allow the situation to become a state. And I think that's the key. Remember these words from John. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've heard me say this a million times, but a step is not a walk. There is a difference in a cleansed sinner and a condemned sinner. You will sin even though you walk in the light, but the difference in walking in light and walking in darkness is you're walking in darkness, you're not walking with God. You're walking in light, you're walking with God. You're walking with Jesus. There is cleansing. There is forgiveness. A step is not a walk. When we read of Abraham in Hebrews chapter 11, we find no mention of his lying or his deception. No mention of it. And you know why? Because it didn't matter. It didn't matter. That had been forgiven. It wasn't pertinent to his story. Maybe for us, but it wasn't for God. At the end of the day, all you need to know about Abraham is that he had faith. That's all that matters, and therefore, that's what gets highlighted. Did you know that when I was in junior high, I snuck out of my bedroom window and rode my bike to Percy's pool hall? Libby's granddad was there. I walked in, and he was there. I, walked down, I, I rode my bike down there with friends so that I could play video games. Did you also know, I think I told you this story, but a friend of mine, we stole some cigarettes from my grandfather and smoked them in the house. I think I told you that. Did you know that about me? If the elders knew that about me when I applied for the job, you think they would have hired me? You think they would have said, you know, Chris, you've got a checkered past. I think we're going to pass on you. No, you know why? Because it didn't matter. That doesn't matter. It mattered then. I can tell you it mattered to my parents when they found out. But it doesn't matter now. That was in the past. That was a moment. It's not a monument. And you have those moments. All of you do. Some of them much worse than that. And let me tell you, I've got some much worse than that. But are they going to be a situation or are they going to be a state? Are they going to be persistent sins or are they going to be forgiven sins? Are they going to be a moment or a monument? These things don't follow us into eternity if we understand what it means to be in Christ. A step is not a walk. Don't allow a moment to become a state of being. And think... Take a, a page from Abraham's story. Keep living, keep leaving, keep looking. And as I close, I want to say this. Go back sometime and read Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 13. As you read through those chapters, you will see that every time Abraham found himself in a new situation, he built an altar. Every time. Every time he found himself facing an obstacle or found himself in a new situation, he built an altar, which means that he worshiped. Every time he found himself in a new situation, he worshiped. He kept his eyes on heaven, waiting for the promise. And folks, that's us. That's every single one of us. We are here waiting on the promise to be fulfilled and waiting in the now, waiting for the not yet is tough. It's difficult at times. It's frustrating. It's hard to keep our focus. It's not always easy to wait, which is why we need to let heaven inform earth, not the other way around. Reaching high, but touching low. 
two feet planted on the ground with two eyes looking towards heaven. So I want to encourage you as you leave here tonight, take your altar with you. Leave here with your altar and spend this week living and looking. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for another day. I love this church family, and I thank you so much for what you're doing at Oldham Lane. Thank you for these wonderful people here. May we serve you to the fullest, and may we live with heavenly vision. May we bend our will to your will always, and may we seek to please you. As we leave here tonight, be with us, God. Help us to leave, live, and look. It's in your son's precious name we pray. And we'd like to offer an invitation tonight. If we can, if we can help you in any way, Jim's going to lead us in a song. We'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to study the Bible with somebody, if you'd like to learn about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, if you'd like to put on Christ in baptism, whatever need you have, Jim's going to lead us. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing? <laughs>